Jesus had a very clear mission. It was the cross. From the beginning, he knew what his identity was and he knew what his purpose was. One of my favorite verses in Luke is Luke 9.51, when it says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. He knew what he was there for. He was to be crucified so that new life would come. It was God's rescue that was being established. We have celebrate that over these last weeks as we've moved through Holy Week. But he also had a very clear vision statement. He said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, it's an interesting time when he gives that because the disciples are questioning him about, or he's questioning his disciples about his identity. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes up with his declaration. And then Jesus turns it from his identity to what his mission was. And what his vision was, was that a church would come up that would do God's work. It would be God's agent in the world. What Jesus came to do on the cross and rescue was to defeat sin, capital S, and death, capital D, because a power was behind it, as John says, to destroy the works of the devil. So he was establishing his people to go out and be his agents to bring things back into their right place. The rescued people become the people engaged in the restoration project. This is Jesus' vision, that a community of followers disciples would take his kingdom message and pack it in word and deed and be God's change agents in this world. Uh, Let me remind you, we are in enemy-occupied territory. We can dress it up, we can put hedges around it, we can polish it, but it's still enemy-occupied territory. And Jesus' vision was that this new community would be God's agent to bring a new world. To bring change. Uh, Over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at this thing called the church, God's agent. And today, we're going to get a first-hand view of the church as it existed in its early days. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Now, before I preach on this, let me just say some things hermeneutically so you can understand it where it fits in Scripture. Uh, Luke writes two different books that have been hovered over by the Holy Spirit so that it became Scripture. Luke is the only Gentile writer in the Scriptures. He writes the gospel that we know as the gospel of Luke. If you go back to the beginning of that, he said, um, I wrote these things down in an orderly way so that you would have certainty in your faith. Uh, You hear us say this all the time, but it's true. Our faith is rooted in historical certainties that lead to inexperience. Inexplainable mysteries that make us humble in our walk, in our witness, in our worship. But we can be confident that these things are rooted in history. Uh, I like to bring us back to that to see the work that Jesus has done. Then Luke wanted to show how the things that Jesus established didn't stop with Jesus, but they got invested in the church and they continued moving forward. The Jesus stuff is now done through the Jesus people. In uh, Acts 1, he begins this way. uh, On the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. It's an interesting introduction. It's implying that Jesus is going to continue doing things through the body of Christ. 
And Jesus tells his followers to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, and he sends them to Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden, this church is birthed out of nowhere. Uh, Verses 42 to 47, listen to what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, uh, number day by day those who were being saved. Now, uh, we were talking this week, and Pastor Nathan said, how many times do you think you've preached and taught on this passage? I bet you it's over 100 times as a professor. But the thing that landed in me when I read it this time was this one word that he already underlined in the children's sermon, devoted. This group of people was devoted. The reason the Jesus stuff continued and has come down to our day is that there was a level of commitment in them that was beyond what you would expect from their life experiences. they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, what was the apostles' teaching? It was quite simple. If you look at the book of Acts, Jesus crucified and Jesus risen. And everything in the Hebrew Scriptures that point to this being the necessary moment in history for our lives to be changed. And they devoted themselves to that. They gave themselves that. They were devoted to the fellowship. Uh, this is a technical word. It's the word koinonia. Uh, fellowship's a misunderstood word because in churches for a long time we've had fellowship halls. We think of fellowship as donuts and coffee. That's not what's going on here. They were devoted to one another. You heard the language in here, together is mentioned twice. Their togetherness was that everything that they had and everything they were did not belong to them. It belonged to the community. My time was your time. My finances were your finances. My gifts were your gifts. Everything was together because they were devoted to one another. It allowed Jesus to establish his presence in them because they were living beyond the reality of how most groups lived. Um, This kind of commitment is a commitment to raw flesh church. Now, I want to say this up front. I'm not committed to the ideal of church. I'm committed to church. And church is people. When we began putting this series together, the original title we had for this sermon was The Ideal Church. I don't want to be a part of the ideal church. The ideal church will make me an idolatrous person. But the real church will force me to press in to experience the crucified life in Christ as we move together with God's presence in our life. Uh, Leslie Flynn has written this interesting book. It's called Great Church Fights. Don't recommend it, but I love this line. To dwell above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. To live below with saints we know, that's another story. I'm not committed to the ideal of the church. I'm committed to church. I'm committed to you. 
We said this as kids all the time. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up and here's the people. Bad theology. My parents should have smacked my hands when I was doing that. Here's the building, here's the steeple, open it up and here's the church. I'm not committed to an ideal. If I'm committed to an ideal, I will be a critical, miserable person in the church because I will never find the ideal. Listen up, saints, this is really important. We have come to a time of consumerism in the church where people are saying, I'm going to pick a church by what I can get out of it. That is a huge mistake. Huge mistake. It's creating a church that's trying to be relevant but has no more substance to it. For us to be a church, it's got to be a church that's committed to higher things, which is the apostles' teaching, which is Jesus crucified and Jesus risen. Isn't it interesting that most of the churches that have given up on that message because it's a little bit too harsh and not politically correct are the ones that are shutting their doors today? We lift up Jesus, Him crucified, and we're committed to one another. If I were just committed to the ideal of church, I would have left you long ago. You're a miserable people. <laughs> I'm glad you at least laugh at that stuff now. But think about it. There is nothing in the natural that would make us be community formed unless we are cruciformed people, people that have been crucified with Christ and our identity is completely changed. And we're committed together. And they gave themselves to the breaking of bread, and to the prayer, specific in the Greek that was the gatherings together in it. As a result of it, they became a friendly community. They began sharing their times in their houses together. You know, one of the things I pray for us is that spontaneous friendships would happen on here on Sundays and Wednesdays when other times are together so that you get together so that we no longer have to do program so that you'll just be the body of Christ. I love when it happens. When I hear about so-and-so meeting so-and-so and and someone meeting someone else, that's the body of Christ that's moving, that was happening in the early church. And what happened when they became this real community that was connected together, worshiping the things that mattered? God transformed them, and the Scripture says here that they had favor with all people. It's interesting. These are people that lost their social standing. There was nothing to gain in following Christ. In fact, they were marginalized by following Christ, but now they're having favor with all people, and God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. As the true community, people began to see Jesus' presence was there, and it transformed society. Okay, so what's my so what this morning? I'm still working on this one, so you're going to have to go with me. I've got a lot of ideas that are coming into me right now. Let me begin by some of the Barna statistics that I read this week. He's come out with a new Barna Trends 2017, Intersection of Faith and Church. Let me just highlight a few of those for you, if I can find them. Uh, I'm going to talk about the church in America. So I'm talking about a bigger entity now. The church in the majority world, that would be the southern and eastern hemisphere, is doing quite well. Uh, They're following a track of doing Scripture or doing church the way Scripture declares it 
and God is moving in those spaces. They're not allowing culture to be the primary driver of what's happening in their context. And so the church is moving well, but it's not doing so well in America. In 1986, 48% of people identified themselves as regular churchgoers. In 2016, only 35%. And I will tell you, the regular churchgoers back then went every Sunday. Now the regular churchgoers are identified as people that go to church once a month. In the U.S., 4,000 churches closed last year. 1,000 opened, which is good, but we're still at a negative deficit of 3,000. Locally, church properties are being sold out, sold off. Now, you heard me say, you know, this isn't the church, but properties are metaphorical and symbols of lampstands, and when those are being sold off, land that was redeemed by past saints who sacrificed to get that land so there would be a glory point for Jesus is being lost, and the sad thing is a lot of those are being replaced by false religions. There's a moral climate that's going against us. You know, the U.S. is the third largest non-Christian population in the world after China and India. And it's not just the numbers. We feel it in the air. Mark Sayers has written this book, Disappearing Church. He's an Aussie, and so in, in Australia, they're a little bit further along as uh, England is a little bit further along, as uh, Canada is a little bit further along in this process, if we will learn from them, we may be able to stop the tide that's moving in a very significant way. But he writes about the church in the West, and he says this, something has changed, can you feel it? Yeah, I feel it. The air temperature has suddenly dropped and strong breeze has descended. The long-watched leaden clouds of secularism are now forebodingly overhead. In the West, we are witnessing a number of disappearances, the ongoing disappearance of the Judeo-Christian worldview from Western culture, the disappearance of a large segment of believers who across the Western world are leaving churches, walking away from active faith or faith altogether during their young adult years, the disappearances of thousands of churches across the West as churches close or begin the process of winding down and as the heavenly represented builder and boomer generations within the church enter their twilight years and pass from this life. The disappearance of a mode of church engagement characterized by commitment, resilience, and sacrifice among many Western believers. In its place, a new mode of disengaged Christian faith and church interaction is emerging. The new mode is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment to phobia, and consumerist framework. What we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. And he goes on and he says, you know what the problem is? The church has been trying to be relevant, and relevant will not change this world. As we try to be relevant, what will happen is we'll lose the things that the early church was committed to, the apostles' teaching, the sacraments, and being committed to one another, irregardless of what our opinions and feelings are about the experiences that we have in church. I will fight for that. Just a couple years ago, I had a father come into my study and he said, um, Pastor, you need to change some things at Stanwich. It's not fun for my kids to be in the sanctuary. 
told me about the church with the light show down the road that could help them and get to there. And I tried to convince him that the studies are showing that you can go to the light show, but your kids will leave the light show because the world does better light shows than the church can ever do. And he leaned across my study desk and he kind of tapped like this and he says, sometimes you have to listen to the customer. The customer. Are we consumers now? Or are we disciples? They devoted themselves. Let me ask you, what are you devoted to? I hate to mention things because I don't want to step, but I really feel like I have to. You devoted to your kids' great education and future job they're going to have. What kind of country are we going to leave to them that's morally bankrupt? You committed to the advancement of your work so you can get your retirement all set up, so what, you can get out of here when the whole thing has fallen apart? What are you devoted to? I'm not asking it in judgment, I'm asking it in concern. So my so what is, what changed those early disciples that they went from self-centered deniers, afraid, to become martyrs? Well, obviously, they beheld the risen Christ. That's the open door. Folks, we've, ha we've beheld the risen Christ here. God's been over good to us. Is that a way of saying anything proper in English? He's been over good to us. The revelation of Jesus in this place is rich. We've beheld him. Changes everything about our identity. But a second thing happened for those group of people. As they experienced the grace of Jesus through knowing crucifixion and resurrection, they also experienced the grace of the Spirit as he filled them and changed everything about them. You see, if you and I try to be devoted to the right things, we will get tired really quickly and we will run out of energy. But if we will be people that are filled of the Holy Spirit, we will be people that will have endurance. We will be people where the awe of God will come upon us. We will be people that the world will look on and say, I want to be a part of that community because they're different. Heard N.T. Wright teach this week. Oh, he said this, Christian, the Holy Spirit didn't save you from the world. He saved you for the world. And in the same way grace comes in and changes everything about my identity, it's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit that comes in and changes everything about my purpose. And now I move in this world in a way that I become the expression of Jesus to a world that needs him. I can't whine about where the world's going. I've got to go in and witness to the one who can change the world. 
So I ask it again, what are you devoted to? We allow the Spirit to fill you up. Fill you up so much with Jesus that every time you get squeezed, Jesus comes out. Oh, Lord. Have mercy. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on a generation that we've given a false view of what church is. Have mercy on our land. Amen.